Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of Thomas Merton's The Seven-Story Mountain. Volume 10, Book 2, Chapter 2, Part 2. The first morning of 1939 was a gray one. It was to turn out a gray year, very gray. But now a cold wind was blowing in off the sea where I walked, among the white empty houses, the naked place where stands the church of St. Ignatius Martyr. The wind did something to help me to wake up, but it did not improve my temper much. The new year was beginning badly. The night before, being New Year's Eve, we had had a party in the house of Seymour's mother-in-law, who was a doctor in Long Beach. It had been a mix-up, desultory affair in which we remained in a place that served as the doctor's waiting room, sitting on the floor, playing different kinds of drums, and drinking I forget what. But whatever it was we drank, it put me in a bad temper. The only person in the room not more or less fed up with everything was Brahmachari, who had taken his turban off and sat in a chair and did not mind the noise. Later on, however, John Slate, who was also in a bad mood, having had a tooth torn out of his head, tried to tie me up in Brahmachari's turban so that the monk quietly went home, that is, to Seymour's house, and slept. Later on, I threw a can of pineapple juice at a streetlight and also went to bed. I was sleeping in the same room with Brahmachari, and consequently, when it began to get light, he sat up and started chanting his morning prayers, and I woke up. Since I could not get back to sleep, even when his prayers trailed off into contemplation, I was going to go to an earlier Mass than I had expected. But it was a good thing. As usual, I found out that the only good thing about such days, or any such days, was Mass. What a strange thing that I did not see how much that meant, and come at last to the realization that it was God alone I was supposed to live for. God that was supposed to be the center of my life and of all that I did. It was to take me nearly a year to untangle the truth from all my disorganized and futile desires. And sometimes it seemed to me that the hangovers I had while I was finding it out had something to do with what was going on in the history of the world. For that was to be 1939, the year when the war that everybody had been fearing finally began to teach us with its inexorable logic, that the dread of war is not enough. If you don't want the effect, do something to remove the cause. There is no use loving the cause and fearing the effect and being surprised when the effect inevitably follows the cause. By this time, I should have acquired enough sense to realize that the cause of wars is sin. If I had accepted the gift of sanctity that had been put in my hands when I stood by the font in November 1938, what might have happened in the world. People have no idea what one saint can do, for sanctity is stronger than the whole of hell. The saints are full of Christ in the plenitude of his kingly and divine power, and they are conscious of it, and they give themselves over to him, that he may exercise his power through their smallest and seemingly insignificant acts for the salvation of the world. But the world did not get very much of that out of me. The end of January came. I remember I took my exams for the M.A. I went to communion two days in a row, and both days I was very happy and also did quite well in the examinations. So after that, I thought it was necessary for me to go to Bermuda for a week and sit in the sun and go swimming and ride bicycles along those empty white roads, rediscovering the sights and smells that had belonged to a year of my early childhood. I met a lot of people who liked to ride around all night in a carriage singing, Someone's in the kitchen with Dinah, strumming on the old banjo. The weather was so good, I came back to New York brown and full of health, with my pocket full of snapshots of the strangers with whom I had been dancing and sailing in yachts. And I was just in time to see Brahmachari leave for India, at last, on the wrecks. He was sailing with the cardinals, who were off to elect the new pope. Then I went to Greenwich Village and signed a lease for a one-room apartment and started working on my Ph.D. I suppose the apartment on Perry Street was part of the atmosphere appropriate to an intellectual such as I imagined myself to be. And, as a matter of fact, I felt much more important in this large room with a bath and a fireplace and French windows leading out to a rickety balcony 
that I had felt in the little place ten feet wide behind the Columbia Library. Besides, I now had a shiny new telephone, all my own, which rang with a deep, discreet, murmuring sort of bell, as if to invite me suavely to expensive and sophisticated pursuits. I don't, as a matter of fact, remember anything very important happening over that telephone, except that I used to make dates with a nurse who was stationed in one of the clinics out of the World's Fair, which opened that year at Flushing Meadows. Also, it was the occasion of a series of furious, sarcastic letters to the telephone company because of various kinds of trouble, mechanical and financial. The one I talked most to over this phone was Lax. He had a phone which did not even cost him anything, for he was living in the Hotel Taft, tutoring the children of the manager and having access to an icebox full of cold chicken at all hours of the day and night. The two principal items of news which he communicated to me from this point of vantage were, first, the appearance of Joyce's Finnegan's Wake, and second, the election of Pope Pius Twelfth. It was one of those first spring mornings when the new warm sun is full of all kinds of delight that I heard about the Pope. I had been sitting on the balcony in a pair of blue dungarees, drinking Coca-Cola and getting the sun. When I am sitting on the balcony, I mean sitting on the good boards and letting my feet dangle through the place where the boards had broken. This was what I did a great deal of the time in the mornings that spring, surveying Perry Street from the east, where it ran up short against a block of brick apartments to the west, where it ended at the river, and you could see the black funnels of the anchor liners. When I wasn't sitting on this balcony doing nothing, I was in the room, in the deepest armchair, studying the letters of Gerard Manley Hopkins and his notebooks, and trying to figure out various manuals on prosody and covering little white index cards with notes. For it was my plan to write a Ph.D. dissertation on Hopkins. The typewriter that was always open on the desk was sometimes busy when I got a book to review, for I had been doing occasional reviews for the Sunday book sections of the Times and Herald Tribune. But what was better, I sometimes managed to grind out with labor and anguish some kind of a poem. I had never been able to write verse before I became Catholic. I had tried, but I had never really succeeded, and it was impossible to keep alive enough ambition to go on trying. I had started once or twice at Oakham, and I had written two or three miserable things at Cambridge. At Columbia, when I thought I was a red, I got a stupid idea for a poem about workers working on a dock and bombing planes flying overhead. You know, ominous. When it got onto the paper, it was so silly that not even the magazines on the fourth floor would print it. The only other verse I had ever been able to turn out before my baptism was an occasional line for the jester. In November 1938, I acquired a sudden facility for rough, raw, skeletonic verses, and that lasted about a month and died. They were not much, but one of them took a prize which it did not deserve. But now I had many kinds of sounds ringing in my ears, and they sometimes asked me to get on paper. When their rhythms and tones followed Andrew Marvel, the results were the best. I always liked Marvell. He did not mean as much to me as Dunn or Crashaw, when Crashaw wrote well, but nevertheless, there was something about his temper for which I felt a special personal attraction. His moods were more clearly my own than Crashaw's or even Dunn's. When I lived on Perry Street, it was hard to write poems. The lines came very slowly, when they came at all, and there were very few of them. They were generally rhymed iambic tetrometer, and because I was uneasy with any rhyme that sounded hackneyed, rhyming was awkward and sometimes strange. I would get an idea and walk around the streets, among the warehouses, toward the poultry market at the foot of 12th Street. I would go out on the chicken dock, trying to work out the four lines of verse in my head, and sit in the sun. And after I had looked at the fireboats, and the old empty barges, and the other loafers, and the Stevens Institute on its bluff across the river in Hoboken, I would write the poem down on a piece of scrap paper, and go home and type it out. I usually sent it at once to some magazine. How many envelopes I fed to the green mailbox at the corner of Perry Street, just before you got to 7th Avenue and everything I put in there came back, except for the book reviews. The more I failed, the more I was convinced that it was important for me to have my work printed in magazines like the Southern Review, or the Partisan Review, or the New Yorker. My chief concern now was to see myself in print. It was as if I could not be 
quite satisfied that I was real until I could feed my ambition with these trivial glories, and my ancient selfishness was now matured and concentrated in this desire to see myself externalized in a public and printed and official self, which I could admire at my ease. This was what I really believed in, reputation, success. I wanted to live in the eyes and the mouths and the minds of men. I was not so crude that I wanted to be known and admired by the whole world. There was a certain naive satisfaction in the idea of being only appreciated by a particular minority, which gave a special fascination to this urge within me. But when my mind was absorbed in all that, how could I lead a spiritual life, the life to which I was called? How could I love God when everything I did was done not for him, but for myself, and not trusting in his aid, but relying on my own wisdom and talents? Lax rebuked me for all this. His whole attitude about writing was purified of such stupidity and was steeped in holiness, in charity, in disinterestedness. Characteristically, he conceived the function of those who knew how to write and who had something to say in terms of the salvation of society. Lax's picture of America, before which he stood for twelve years with his hands hanging in helplessness at his sides, is the picture of a country full of people who want to be kind and pleasant and happy and love good things and serve God, but do not know how. And they do not know where to turn to find out. They are surrounded by all kinds of sources of information which only conspire to bewilder them more and more. And Lax's vision is a vision of the day when they will turn on the radio and somebody will start telling them what they have really been wanting to hear and needing to know. They will find somebody who is capable of telling them of the love of God in language that will no longer sound hackneyed or crazy, but with authority and conviction, the conviction born of sanctity. I'm not sure whether this conception of his necessarily implied a specific vocation, a definite and particular mission, but in any case, he assumed that it was the sort of thing that should be open to me, to Gibney, to Seymour, to Mark Van Doren, to some writers he admired, perhaps even to somebody who he did not know, perhaps even to somebody who did not know how to talk but could only play a trumpet or a piano, and was open to himself also. But for himself, he was definitely waiting to be sent. In any case, although I had gone before him to the fountains of grace, Lax was much wiser than I, and had clearer vision, and was in fact corresponding much more truly to the grace of God than I, and he had seen what was the only important thing. I think he has told what he had to say to many people besides myself, but certainly his was one of the voices through which the insistent spirit of God was determined to teach me the way I had to travel. Therefore, another one of those times that turned out to be historical, as far as my own soul is concerned, was when Lax and I were walking down 6th Avenue one night in spring. The street was all torn up and trenched and banked high with dirt and marked out with red lanterns where they were digging the subway. And we picked our way along the fronts of the dark little stores going down to Greenwich Village. I forget what we were arguing about, but in the end, Lax suddenly turned around and asked me this question. What do you want to be, anyway? I couldn't say I want to be Thomas Merton, the well-known writer of all those book reviews in the back pages of the Times Book Review, or Thomas Merton, the assistant instructor of freshman English at the New Life School Institute for Progress and Culture. So I put the thing on the spiritual plane where I knew it belonged and said, I don't know, I guess what I want is to be a good Catholic. What do you mean you want to be a good Catholic? The explanation I gave was lame enough and expressed my confusion and betrayed how little I really thought about it at all. Lax did not accept it. What you should say, he told me, what you should say is that you want to be a saint. A saint? The thought struck me as a little weird and I said, how do you expect me to become a saint? By wanting to, said Lax simply. I can't be a saint, I said. I can't be a saint. And my mind darkened with a confusion of realities and unrealities. The knowledge of my own sins and the false humility which makes men say that they cannot do the things that they must do, cannot reach the level that they must reach. The cowardice that says, I am satisfied to save my soul, to keep out of mortal sin, which means by those words 
I do not want to give up my sins and my attachments. But Lack said, No, all that is necessary to be a saint is to want to be one. Don't you believe that God will make you what he created you to be? If you will consent to let him do it, all you have to do is desire it. A long time ago, St. Thomas Aquinas had said the very same thing, and it is something that is obvious to everybody who ever understood the Gospels. After Lax was gone, I thought about it, and it became obvious to me. The next day, I told Mark Van Doren, Lax is going around saying that all a man needs to be to be a saint is to want to be one. Of course, said Mark. All these people were much better Christians than I, they understood God better than I. What was I doing? Why was I so slow, so mixed up, still so uncertain in my directions and so insecure? So at great cost, I bought the first volume of the works of St. John of the Cross and sat in the room on Perry Street and turned over the first pages, underlining places here and there with a pencil. But it turned out that it would take more than that to make me a saint, because these words I underlined although they amazed and dazzled me with their import, were all too simple for me to understand. They were too naked, too stripped of all duplicity and compromise for my complexity, perverted by my appetites. However, I am glad that I was at least able to recognize them, obscurely, as worthy of great respect. Part 3 when the summer came, I sublet the apartment on Perry Street to Seymour's wife and went upstate, into the hills behind Oleanne. Lax's brother-in-law had a cottage on top of a hill from which you could see miles over New York and Pennsylvania, miles of blue hilltops and wooded ridges, miles of forest smudged here and there in the dry weeks with smoke and gashed open in the neighboring valley by the lumbermen. All day and night, the silence of the woods was broken by the coughing of oil pumps, and when you passed through the trees, you could see long metal arms moving back and forth clumsily in the shadows of the glade because the hills were full of oil. So Benji, Lax's brother-in-law, gave us this place and let us live there, trusting more than he should have in our ability to live in a house for more than a week without partially destroying it. Lax and I and Rice moved into the cottage and looked around for places to put our typewriters. There was one big room with a huge stone fireplace and the works of Rabelais and a table which we presently ruined, feeding ourselves on it with hamburgers and canned beans and untold quarts of milk. There was a porch which looked out over the hills and where we eventually erected a trapeze. It was very pleasant to sit on the step of this porch and look at the valley in the quiet evening and play the drums. We had a pair of bongos, a Cuban double drum, which is played two-handed and gives several different tones, depending on where and how you hit it. In order to make sure we would have plenty of books, we went down to the library at St. Bonaventure's College, where, this time, being baptized, I was no longer scared of the friars. The librarian was Father Arrhenius, who looked up at us through his glasses and recognized Lax with ingenuous surprise. He always seemed to be surprised, and glad to see everybody. Lax introduced him to us. This is Ed Rice. This is Tom Merton. Ah, Mr. Rice, Mr. Myrtle. Father Arrhenius took us both in with the eyes of a rather bookish child and shook hands without embarrassment. Merton, corrected Lax. Tom Merton. Yes, glad to know you, Mr. Myrtle, said Father Arrhenius. They were at Columbia, too, said Lax. Ah, Columbia, said Father Arrhenius. I studied at the Columbia Library School. And then he took us into his own library and with reckless trust abandoned all the shelves to us. It never occurred to him to place any limits upon the appetites of those who seemed to like books. If they wanted books, well, this was a library, and he had plenty of books. That was what a library was for. You could take as many as you like and keep them until you were through. He was astonishingly free of red tape, this happy little Franciscan. When I got to know the friars a little better, I found out that this trait was fairly universal. Those who love rigid and methodical systems have their life of penance all cut out for them if they enter the Franciscans, and especially if they become superiors. 
But as far as I know, Father Arrhenius has never been robbed of his books on a larger scale than any other librarian. And on the whole, the little library at St. Bonaventure's was always one of the most orderly and peacefully I have ever seen. Presently, we came out of the stacks with our arms full. May we take all these, Father? Sure, sure, that's fine. Help yourself. We signed a vague sort of ticket and shook hands. Goodbye, Mr. Myrtle, said the friar, and stood in the open door and folded his hands as we started down the steps with our spoils. I did not know that I had discovered a place where I was going to find out something about happiness. The books we took back to the cottage were hardly opened all summer. But anyway, they were there, lying around, in case we needed something to read. But really, they were not necessary, for we eventually found places that proved very suitable for our typewriters, and all started writing novels. Rice wrote a novel called The Blue Horse. It took him about ten days. It was about 150 pages long, illustrated. Lax wrote several fragments of novels, which presently coalesced into one called The Spangled Palace. But the thing I got started on grew longer and longer and longer, and eventually it was about 500 pages long and was first called Straits of Dover, and then The Night Before the Battle, and then The Labyrinth. In its final form, it was shorter and had been half rewritten, and it went to several publishers, but to my great sorrow never got printed. At least I was sorry about it in those days, but now I am full of self-congratulation at the fact that those pages escaped the press. It was partly autobiographical, and therefore it took in some of the ground that this present book had covered, but it took in much more of the ground that I had avoided covering this time. Besides, I found the writing of it easier and more amusing if I mixed up a lot of imaginary characters in my own story. It was a pleasant way to write. When the truth got dull, I could create a diversion with a silly man called Terence Metrotone. I later changed him to Terence Park, after I showed the first draft of the book to my uncle, who abashed me by concluding that Terence Metrotone was a kind of acrostic for myself. That was, as a matter of fact, very humiliating because I had made such a fool of the character. The mere pleasure of sitting on top of this wooded mountain with miles of country and cloudless sky to look at and birds to listen to all day, and the healthy activity of writing page after page of novel out under a tree facing the garage made those weeks happy ones in a natural sort of way. We could have made even more of it than we did. I think we all had a sort of feeling that we could be hermits up on that hill. But the trouble was that none of us really knew how, and I, who was in a way the most articulate as well as the most sensible, whenever it came to matters of conduct and decisions concerning good and evil, still had the strongest urges to go down to the valleys and see what was at the movies, or play the slot machines, or drink beer. The best we could do about expressing our obscure desire of living lives that were separate and in some sense dedicated was to allow our beards to grow, which they did more or less slowly. Lax ended up with the best. It was black and solemn, Rice's was rather ragged, but it looked fine when he grinned, because he had big teeth and slanting eyes like an Eskimo. I myself entertained the secret belief that I looked like Shakespeare. I was still wearing the thing when I went to New York later, and I took it to the World's Fair. I was standing thus bearded in a sideshow that had something to do with Africa, and a young man who was not an explorer but wore a white explorer's outfit took me to be indeed an explorer because of the beard, or at least he plied me with some knowing questions about Central Africa. I think we were both trading on our knowledge of that wonderful movie, Dark Rapture. The cottage would have made a good hermitage, and I now wish that we had more exploited its possibilities. Lax was the only one who had the sense to get up sometimes very early in the morning, about sunrise. For my own part, I usually slept until about eight, then fried a couple of eggs and swallowed a bowl of cornflakes and started at once to write. The closest I got to using the solitude for meditation was when I spent a few afternoons under a little peach tree in the high grass of what might have been a lawn and read at last St. Augustine's Confessions and parts of St. Thomas's Summa. I had accepted Lax's principle about sanctity being possible to those who willed it and filed it away in my head with all the other principles, and still I did nothing about using it. What was this curse that was on me that I could not translate belief into action? 
and my knowledge of God into a concrete campaign for possessing him, whom I knew to be the only true good. No, I was content to speculate and argue, and I think the reason is that my knowledge was too much a mere matter of natural and intellectual consideration. After all, Aristotle placed the highest natural felicity in the knowledge of God, which was accessible to him, a pagan. And I think he was probably right. The heights that can be reached by metaphysical speculation introduce a man into a realm of pure and subtle pleasure that offers the most nearly permanent delights you can find in the natural order. When you go one step higher and base your speculations on premises that are revealed, the pleasure gets deeper and more perfect still. Yet even though the subject matter may be the mysteries of the Christian faith, the manner of contemplating them, speculative and impersonal, may still not transcend the natural plane, at least as far as practical consequences go. In such an event, you get not contemplation, but a kind of intellectual and aesthetic gluttony, a high and refined and even virtuous form of selfishness. And when it leads to no movement of the will toward God, no efficacious love of him, it is sterile and dead, this meditation, and could even accidentally become, under certain circumstances, a kind of sin, or at least an imperfection. Experience has taught me one big moral principle, which is this. It is totally impractical to plan your actions on the basis of a vast two-column list of possibilities, with mortal sins on one side and things that are not a mortal sin on the other, the one to be avoided and the other to be accepted without discussion. Yet this hopelessly misleading division of possibilities is what serves large numbers of Catholics as a whole moral theology. It's not so bad when they're busy working for a living that the range of possibilities is more or less cut down and determined, but heaven help them when they go on vacation or when Saturday night comes around. It's one reason for the number of drunken Irishmen in the world on Saturday nights, for as we know, it is quite true, incomplete drunkenness is per se a venial sin. Therefore, apply the two-column principle. You run your finger down the column of mortal sins, per se, going to a movie in which a man and a woman maul each other at close range for hundreds of feet of film is not a mortal sin, per se. Neither is incomplete drunkenness, nor gambling, and so on. Therefore, all these belong to the order of pursuits which are not illicit. Therefore, they are licit. Therefore, if anybody says no matter what, with qualifications, that you ought not to do these things, he's a heretic. If people are not careful, they get themselves into the position of arguing that it is virtuous to go to the movies, to gamble, and to get half drunk. I know what I'm talking about because that is the way I was still trying to live in those days. Do you want to see the two-column principle in operation? Here is an example of a lot of things which were not mortal sins in themselves. What they were, per accidents, I am afraid to say. I leave them up to the mercy of God, but they were done by one whom he was calling to a life of perfection, a life dedicated to the joy of serving and loving him alone. A carnival came to Bradford. To us that meant a couple of Ferris wheels and a bingo game and the whip, and a man wearing a white uniform and a crash helmet being fired out of a cannon into a net. We got into the car and started out along the Rock City Road, through the dark woods alive with the drumming of the oil pumps. It was a big carnival. It seemed to fill the bottom of a narrow valley, one of the zigzag valleys in which Bradford is hidden, and the place blazed with lights. The stacks of the oil refinery stood up beyond the lights, like the guardians of hell. We walked into the white glare and the noise of crazy electric music and the thick sweet smell of candy. Hey, you fellas, come over this way if you please. We turned our beards shyly toward the man in shirt sleeves, hatted with a felt hat leaning out of his booth. We could see the colored board, the numbers. We approached. He began to explain to us that, out of the kindness of his big foolish heart, he was conducting this game of chance which was so easy and simple that it really amounted to a kind of public charity, a means for endowing intelligent and honest young men like ourselves with a handsome patrimony. We listened to his explanation. It was not one of those games where you won a box of popcorn. That was evident. In fact, although it started at a quarter, the ante doubled at every throw. Of course, so did the prize, and the prize was in dollars. All you gotta do is throw the little ball into these holes and... 
and he explained what holes you had to roll the little ball into. Each time you had to get a new and different combination of numbers. You put down your quarter, said our benefactor, and you're about to win $2.50. If you should happen to miss it the first time, it'll be all the better for you because for 50 cents, you'll win $5. For $1, you'll take 10. For 2, you'll take 20. We put down our quarters and rolled the little balls into the wrong holes. Good for you, said the man. And now you stand a chance of winning twice as much. And we put down 50 cents. Fine, fine, keep it up. You're getting ready to win more and more each time. You can't miss. It's inevitable. And he pocketed a dollar bill from each of us. That's the way, men. That's the way, he exclaimed as we all rolled the little ball into the wrong holes again. I paused and asked him to go over the rules of the game a second time, which he did, and I listened closely. It was as I thought. I hadn't the vaguest idea what he was talking about. You had to get certain combinations of numbers, and for my own part, I was completely unable to figure out what the combinations were. He simply told us what to shoot for, and then rapidly added up all the numbers and announced, You just missed it! Try again! You're so close you can't fail! And the combination changed again. In about two and a half minutes, he had taken all our money except for a dollar, which I was earnestly saving for the rest of the carnival and for beer. How, he asked us, could we have the heart to quit now? Here we were, right at the point of cleaning up, getting back all our losses, and winning a sum that made us dizzy, $350. Men, you can't quit now. You're just throwing away your money if you quit. It doesn't make any sense, does it? You didn't come all this way out here just to throw away your dough. Use your heads, boys. Can't you see you gotta win? Rice got a big grin on his face that meant, let's get out of here. We haven't got any more money, somebody said. You got any traveler's checks? The philanthropist inquired. No, but I never saw anybody so absorbed and solemn as Lax was. At that moment, at his black beard, with his head bowed, over all those incomprehensible numbers. So he looked at me, and I looked at him, and the man said, If you want to run home and get some more money, I'll hold the game open for you. How about that? And we said, Hold the game open. We'll be back. We got into the car and drove, in the most intense silence, 15 miles, or whatever the distance was to the cottage, 15 miles and 15 miles back, with $35, and all the rest of the money we had. But the 35 alone were for the game. When the benefactor of the poor saw the three of us come through the gate again, he looked really surprised and a little scared. The expressions on our faces must have been rather frightening, and perhaps he imagined we had gone home not only to get our money but our guns. We walked up to the booth. You held this game open for us, huh? Yes, indeed, men, the game is open. Explain it again. And he explained it over again. He told us what we had to get to win. It seemed impossible to miss. We put the money down on the counter and Lax rolled the little ball into the wrong holes. Is that all, boys? said the Prince of Charity. That's all. We turned on our heels and walked away. With the money I had kept in my pocket, we went into the other places we would have done well to keep out of and saw all of the carnival, then went into Bradford drinking beer in a bar we began to feel better and started to assuage our wounds by telling a lot of fancy lies to some girls we met in the bar. They were maids who worked at the TB sanatorium at Rocky Crest on the mountain about a mile and a half from the cottage. I remember that as the evening went on, there was a fairly large mixed audience of strangers gathered around the table where we were holding forth about the amusement ring, which we managed and controlled. It was called the Pan American Entertainment Corporation and was so magnificent that it made the present carnival in Bradford look like a sideshow. However, the effect was somewhat spoiled when a couple of Bradford strongmen came up with no signs of interest in our story and said, If we see you guys around here again with those beards, we're going to knock your heads off. So Rice stood up and said, Yeah, you want to fight? Everybody went out into the alley and there was a great deal of talk back and forth, but no fight which was a good thing. They were quite capable of making us eat those beards. We eventually found our way home, but Rice did not dare to try to drive the car into the garage for fear he might miss the door. We stopped short in the driveway, and we opened the doors of the car and rolled out and lay on the grass, 
looking blindly up into the stars while the earth rolled and pitched beneath us like a foundering ship. The last thing I remember about that night was that Rice and I eventually got up and walked into the house and found Lack sitting in one of the chairs in the living room, talking aloud and uttering a lot of careful and well-thought-out statements directed to a pile of dirty clothes bundled up and ready for the laundry, which somebody had left in another armchair on the other side of the room. Part 4 When we got back to New York in the middle of August, the world that I had helped to make was finally preparing to break the shell and put forth its evil head and devour another generation of men. At Olean, we never read any newspapers, and we kept away from radios on principle. And for my own part, the one thing that occupied my mind was the publication of the new novel. Having found an old copy of Fortune lying around Benji's premises, I had read an article in it on the publishing business, and on the basis of that article, I had made what was perhaps the worst possible choice of a publisher, the kind of people who would readily reprint everything in the Saturday Evening Post in diamond letters on sheets of gold. They were certainly not disposed to be sympathetic to the wild and rambling thing I had composed on the mountain, and it was going to take them a good long time to get around telling me about it. For my own part, I was walking around New York in the incomparable agony of a new author waiting to hear the fate of his first book, an agony which is second to nothing except the torments of adolescent love. And because of my anguish, I was driven, naturally enough, to fervent, though interested, prayer. But after all, God does not care if our prayers are interested. He wants them to be. Ask and you shall receive. It is a kind of pride to insist that none of our prayers should ever be petitions for our own needs, for this is only another subtle way of trying to put ourselves on the same plane as God, acting as if we had no needs, as if we were not creatures, not dependent on Him and dependent by His will on material things too. So I knelt at the altar rail in the little Mexican church of Our Lady of Guadalupe on 14th Street, where I sometimes went to communion, and asked with great intensity of desire for the publication of the book, if it should be for God's glory. The fact that I could even calmly assume that there was some possibility of the book giving glory to God shows the profound depths of my ignorance and spiritual blindness. But anyway, that was what I asked. But now I realize that it was a very good thing that I made that prayer. It is a matter of common belief among Catholics that when God promises to answer our prayers, He does not promise to give us exactly what we ask for. But we can always be certain that if he does not give us that, it is because he has something much better to give us instead. That is what is meant by Christ's promise, that we all receive what we ask for in his name. Quod cumque petimus adversus utitatum salutus, non petimus in nomine salvatoris. I think I prayed as well as I could, considering what I was, and with considerable confidence in God and Our Lady, and I knew I would be answered. I am only beginning to realize how well I was answered. In the first place, the book was never published, and that was a good thing. But in the second place, God answered me by a favor which I had already refused and had practically ceased to desire. He gave me back the vocation that I had half-consciously given up, and he opened up to me again the doors that had fallen shut when I had not known what to make of my baptism and the grace of that first communion. But before he did this, I had to go through some little darkness and suffering. I think those days at the end of August 1939 were terrible for everyone. They were gray days of great heat and sultriness, and the weight of physical oppression by the weather added immeasurably to the burden of the news from Europe that got more ominous day by day. Now it seemed that at last there really would be war in earnest. Some sense of the craven and perverted aesthetic excitement with which the Nazis were waiting for the thrill of this awful spectacle made itself felt negatively and with hundredfold force and the disgust and nausea with which the rest of the world expected the embrace of this colossal instrument of death. It was a danger that had added to it an almost incalculable element of dishonor and insult and degradation and shame. And the world faced not only destruction, but destruction with the greatest possible defilement. 
Defilement of that which is most perfect in man, his reason, his will, his immortal soul. All this was obscure to most people, and made itself felt only in a mixture of disgust and hopelessness and dread. They did not realize that the world had now become a picture of what the majority of its individuals had made of their own souls. We had given up our minds and wills to be raped and defiled by sin, by hell itself. And now, for our inexorable instruction and reward, the whole thing was to take place all over again before our eyes, physically and morally, in the social order, so that some of us, at least, might have some conception of what we had done. In those days, I realized it myself. I remember one of the nights at the end of August when I was riding on the subway and suddenly noticed that practically nobody in the car was reading the evening paper, although the wires were hot with news. The tension had become so great that even their toughest of cities had had to turn aside and defend itself against the needles of such an agonizing stimulation. For once, everybody else was feeling what Lax and I and Gibney and Rice had been feeling for two years about newspapers and news. There was something else in my mind, the recognition. I myself am responsible for this. My sins have done this. Hitler is not the only one who started this war. I have my share in it, too. It was a very sobering thought, and yet its deep and probing light, by its very truth, eased my soul a little. I made up my mind to go to confession and communion on the first Friday of September. The nights dragged by. I remember one when I was driving in from Long Island, where I had been having dinner at Gibney's house at Port Washington. The man with whom I was riding had a radio in the car, and we were riding along the empty parkway, listening to a quiet, tired voice from Berlin. These commentator voices had lost all their pep. There was none of that lusty, doctrinaire relation with which the news broadcasters usually convey the idea that they know all about everything. This time, you knew that nobody knew what was going to happen, and they all admitted it. True, they all agreed that the war was now going to break out. But when where, they could not say. All the trains to the German frontier had been stopped. All air service had been discontinued. The streets were empty. You got the feeling that things were being cleared for the first great air raid, the one that everyone had been wondering about, that H.G. Wells and all the other people had written about, the one that would wipe out London in one night. The Thursday night before the first Friday of September, I went to confession at St. Patrick's Cathedral, and then, with characteristic stupidity, stopped in at Dillon's, which was a bar where we went all the time, across the street from the stage door of the Center Theater. Gibney and I used to sit there, waiting for the show to end, and we would hang around until one or two in the morning with several girls we knew who had bits to play in it. This evening, before the show was out, I ran into Ginny Burton, who was not in the show but could have been in many better shows than that, and she said she was going home to Richmond over Labor Day. She invited me to come with her. We arranged to meet at Penn Station the following morning. When it was morning, I woke up early and heard the radios. I could not quite make out what they were saying, but the voices were not tired anymore. There was much metallic shouting, which meant something had really happened. On the way to Mass, I found out what it was. They had bombed Warsaw, and the war had finally begun. In the church of St. Francis of Assisi, near Penn Station, there was a high mass. The priest stood at the altar under the dome mosaic of the apse, and his voice rose in the solemn cadences of the preface of the mass, those ancient and splendid and holy words of the immortal mass. Vere dignum et justum est equium et salutare nos tibi semper et ubique Gratias agere, Domine Sancte, Peter Omnipotens, Eterna Deus. It was the voice of the Church, the Bride of Christ, who is in the world yet not of it, whose life transcends and outlives wars and persecutions and revolutions and all the wickedness and cruelty and rapacity and injustice of men. It is truly just, always and in all things, to give thanks, Holy Lord, Omnipotent Father, Eternal God. A tremendous prayer, 
that reduces all wars to their real smallness and insignificance in the face of eternity. It is a prayer that opens the door to eternity, that springs from eternity and goes again into eternity, taking our minds with it in its deep and peaceful wisdom. Always and in all things to give thee thanks, omnipotent Father. Was it thus that she was singing this church, this one body, who had already begun to suffer and to bleed again in another war? She was thanking him in the war, in her suffering, not for the war and for the suffering, but for his love which she knew was protecting her and us in this new crisis. And raising up her eyes to him, she saw the eternal God alone, through all these things, was interested in his actions alone, not in the bungling cruelty of secondary causes, but only in his love, his wisdom. And to him, the church, his bride, gave praise through Christ, through whom all the angelic hierarchies praise him. I knelt at the altar rail, and on this, the first day of the Second World War, received from the hand of the priest, Christ in the host, the same Christ who was being nailed again to the cross by the effect of my sins and the sins of the whole selfish, stupid, idiotic world of men. There was no special joy in that weekend in Virginia. On the Saturday afternoon, when we started out from Richmond to go to Urbana, where Jenny's family had a boat they were going to sail in a regatta, we got the news about the sinking of the Athenia, and then that evening, I suddenly developed a pain in an impacted wisdom tooth. It raged all night, and the next day I staggered off to the regatta, worn out by sleeplessness and holding a jaw full of pain. Down at the dock, where there was a gas pump for the motor boats and a red tank full of Coca-Cola on ice, we stood out in the sun in the doorway of a big shed smelling of ropes and pitch and listened to a man talking on the radio from London. His voice was reassuring. The city had not yet been bombed. We started out of the cove and passed through the mouth into the open estuary of the Rappahannock, blazing with sun and everybody joking about the Bremen. The big German liner had sailed out of New York without warning and had disappeared. Every once in a while, some high-drawling southern female voice would cry, There's the Bremen! I had a bottle of medicine in my pocket, and with a match and a bit of cotton, I swabbed the furious, impacted tooth. Nevertheless, when I got back to New York, it turned out that the war was not going to be so ruthless after all, at least so it seemed. The fighting was fierce in Poland, but in the West there was nothing doing. And now that the awful tension was over, people were quieter and more confident than they had been before the fighting had started. I went to a dentist who hammered and chipped at my jaw until he got the wisdom tooth out of my head, and then I went back to Perry Street and lay on my bed and played some ancient records of Bix Biederbeck, Paul Whiteman's trumpet player, and swabbed my bleeding mouth with purple disinfectant until the whole place reeked of it. I had five stitches in my jaw. The days went by. The city was quiet and confident. It even began to get gay again. Whatever happened, it was evident that America was not going to get into the war right away. And a lot of people were saying that it would just go on like this for years. A sort of state of armed waiting and sniping, with the big armies lined up in their impregnable fortified areas. It was as if the world were entering upon a strange new era in which the pretense of peace had defined itself out into what it was, a state of permanent hostility that was, nevertheless, not quite ready to fight. And some people thought we were just going to stay that way for 20 years. For my own part, I did not think anything about it, except that the grim humor of Russia's position in the war could not help but strike me. For now, after a loud outcry and a great storm of crocodile cheers over Chamberlain's betrayal of Czechoslovakia the year before, the Reds were comfortably allied with Germany and blessing with a benign smile the annihilation of Poland, ready themselves to put into effect some small designs of their own regarding the Finns. The party line had evolved indeed, and turned itself into many knots since the days of the 1935 peace strike and the Oxford Pledge. We had once been led to believe that all wars were wars of aggression, and wars of aggression were the direct product of capitalism, masking behind fascism and all the other movements with colored shirts, and therefore no one should fight at all. 
It now turned out that the thing to do was support the aggressive war of the Soviets against Finland and approve the Russian support of German aggression in Poland. The September days went by and the first signs of fall were beginning to be seen in the clearing of the bright air. The days of heat were done. It was getting on toward the season of new beginnings when I would get back to work on my Ph.D., and when I hope possibly to get some kind of job as an instructor at Columbia, in the college or in the extension. These were things I was thinking about when, one night, Rice and Bob Gerdig and I were in Nick's on Sheridan Square, sitting at the curb bar where the room rocked with jazz. Presently, Gibney came in with Peggy Wells, who was one of the girls in that show at the Center Theater, the name of which I have forgotten. We all sat together at a table and talked and drank, It was just like all the other nights we spent in those places. It was more or less uninteresting, but we couldn't think of anything else to do, and there seemed to be no point in going to bed. After Rice and Gertie went home, Gibney and Peggy and I still sat there. Finally, it got to be about four o'clock in the morning. Gibney did not want to go out to Long Island, and Peggy lived uptown in the 80s. They came to Perry Street, which was just around the corner. It was nothing unusual for me to sit on the floor in a chair or on a couch too narrow and too short for comfort. That was the way we lived, and the way thousands of other people like us lived. One stayed up all night and finally went to sleep wherever there happened to be room for one man to put his tired carcass. It is a strange thing that we should have thought nothing of it, when if anyone had suggested sleeping on the floor as a penance for the love of God, we would have felt that he was trying to insult our intelligence and the dignity of men. What a barbarous notion, making yourself uncomfortable as a penance. And yet we somehow seem to think it quite logical to sleep that way as part of an evening dedicated to pleasure. It shows how far the wisdom of the world will go in contradicting itself. From him that hath not, it shall be taken away even that which he hath. I suppose I got some five or six hours of fitful sleep, and at about eleven we were all awake, sitting around disheveled and half-stupefied, talking and smoking and playing records. The thin, ancient, somewhat elegiac cadences of the long-dead Biederbeck sang in the room. From where I sat on the floor, I could see beyond the roofs to a patch of clear fall sky. It was about one o'clock in the afternoon. I went out to get some breakfast, returning with scrambled eggs and toast and coffee and an armful of cardboard containers, different shapes and sizes and pockets full of new packets of cigarettes. But I did not feel like smoking. We ate and talked and finally cleared up all the mess, and someone had the idea of going for a walk to the chicken dock. So we all got ready to go. Somewhere in the midst of all this, an idea had come to me, an idea that was startling enough and momentous enough by itself, but much more astonishing in the context. Perhaps many people will not believe what I am saying. While we were sitting there on the floor playing records and eating this breakfast, the idea came to me. I am going to be a priest. I cannot say what caused it. It was not a reaction of especially strong disgust at being so tired and so disinterested in this life I was still leading in spite of its futility. It was not the music, not the fall air, for this conviction that had suddenly been planted in me Full-grown was not the sick and haunting sort of thing that an emotional urge always is. It was not a thing of passion or of fancy. It was a strong and sweet and deep and insistent attraction that suddenly made itself felt, but not as movement of appetite toward any sensible good. It was something in the order of conscience, a new and profound and clear sense that this was what I really ought to do. How long the idea was in my mind before I mentioned it, I cannot say. But presently I said casually, You know, I think I ought to go and enter a monastery and become a priest. Gibney had heard that before and thought I was fooling. The statement aroused no argument or comment. And anyway, it was not one to which Gibney was essentially unsympathetic. As far as he was concerned, any life made sense except that of a businessman. As we went out the door of the house, I was thinking, I am going to be a priest. When we were on the chicken dock, my mind was full of the same idea. Around three or four in the afternoon, Gibney left and went home to Port Washington. Peggy and I sat looking at the dirty river for a while longer. Then I walked her to the subway. In the shadows, under the elevated drive over 10th Avenue, I said, 
Peggy, I mean it. I am going to enter a monastery and be a priest. Now, she didn't know me very well. And anyway, she had no special idea about being a priest. There wasn't much she could say. Anyway, what did I expect her to say? I was glad at last to be alone on that big wide street that's the continuation of 8th Avenue, where the trucks run very fast and loud. There was a little Catholic library and a German bakery where I often ate my meals. Before going to the bakery to get dinner and supper in one, I went to the Catholic library, St. Veronica's. The only book about religious orders they seemed to have was a little green book about the Jesuits, but I took it and read it while I ate in the bakery. Now that I was alone, the idea assumed a different and more cogent form. Very well, I had accepted the possibility of the priesthood as real and fitting for me. It remained for me to make it, in some sense, more decisive. But what did that mean? What was required? My mind groped for some sort of answer. What was I supposed to do here and now? I must have been a long time over that little book and these thoughts. When I came out into the street again, it was dusk. The side streets, in fact, were already quite dark. I suppose it was around 7 o'clock. Some kind of instinct prompted me to go to 16th Street, to the Jesuit Church of St. Francis Xavier. I had never been there. I don't know what I was looking for. Perhaps I was thinking primarily of talking to some of the fathers there. I don't know. When I got to 16th Street, the whole building seemed dark and empty. And as a matter of fact, the doors of the church were locked. Even the street was empty. I was about to go away disappointed when I noticed a door to some kind of basement under the church. Ordinarily, I would have never noticed such a door. You went down a couple of steps, and there it was, half hidden under the stairs that led up to the main door of the church. There was no sign that the door was anything but locked and bolted fast. But something prompted me. Try that door. I went down two steps and put my hand on the heavy iron handle. The door yielded and I found myself in a lower church, and the church was full of lights and people, and the blessed sacrament was exposed in a monstrance on the altar, and at last I realized what I was supposed to do and why I had been brought here. It was some kind of novena service, maybe a holy hour, I don't know, but it was nearly ending. Just as I found a place and fell on my knees, they began singing the tantum ergo. All these people, workmen, poor women, students, clerks, singing the Latin hymn to the Blessed Sacrament, written by St. Thomas Aquinas. I fixed my eyes on the monstrance, on the white host, and then it suddenly became clear to me that my whole life was at a crisis. Far more than I could imagine or understand or conceive was now hanging upon a word, a decision of mine. I had not shaped my life to this situation. I had not been building up to this. Nothing had been further from my mind. There was, therefore, an added solemnity in the fact that I had been called in here abruptly to answer a question that had been preparing, not in my mind, but in the infinite depths of an eternal providence. I did not clearly see it then, but I think now that it might have been something in the nature of a last chance. If I had hesitated or refused at that moment, what would have become of me? But the way into the new land, the promised land, the land that was not like Egypt where I persisted in living, was now thrown open again, and I instinctively sensed that it was only for a moment. It was a moment of crisis, yet of interrogation, a moment of searching, but it was a moment of joy. It took me about a minute to collect my thoughts about the grace that had been suddenly planted in my soul and to adjust the weak eyes of my spirit to its unaccustomed light. And during that moment, my whole life remained suspended on the edge of an abyss. But this time, the abyss was an abyss of love and peace, the abyss of God. It would be in some sense a blind, irrevocable act to throw myself over. But if I failed to do that, I did not even have to turn and look behind me at what I would be leaving. Wasn't I tired enough of all that? So now the question faced me, do you really want to be a priest? If you do, say so. The hymn was ending. The priest collected the ends of the humeral veil over his hands that held the base of the monstrance and slowly lifted it off the altar and turned to bless the people. I looked straight at the host and I knew now 
who it was that I was looking at, and I said, Yes, I want to be a priest. With all my heart I want it. If it is your will, make me a priest. Make me a priest. When I had said them, I realized in some measure what I had done with those last four words, what power I had put into motion on my behalf, and what a union had been sealed between me and that power by my decision. Thank you.